Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. We can reclaim our dignity. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I'm joined by Alan Moore. Alan is a designer and business innovator on a mission to help businesses discover their own unique beauty. Alan's most recent books, 2016's Do Design, Why Beauty is Key to Everything, and this year's Do Build, How to Make and Lead a Business the World Needs, are among my favorite reads of the past year. Alan shares his journey, which includes a somewhat unexpected path into design, and the advice he received from his mentor, Derek Birdsall, which to this day still helps guide Alan's work. We dig into some of Alan's design tools and principles, including the power of the poetic brief, the potential of regenerative businesses and economies, and why beauty is the key to everything. We explore the capacity of narrative, the insights in biomimicry, and the holy trinity of craft, heart, hand, and mind. This was a special conversation for me. I appreciate Alan's perspective and passion for design and why design is a way that, quote, we can reclaim our dignity, end quote. Through the lens of the shaker craft, we can see what they're reaching for is not beauty, but truth. As Alan applies the lessons and insights from design to business innovation, he provokes and inspires with a powerful framing question, what is the best possible outcome? And why some of the biggest innovation risks companies are facing is taking no risk at all. It was an honor and absolute pleasure having Alan join me on the show. Perhaps Alan and I can have our next conversation while walking in nature. I hope you enjoy the episode. Alan, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, uh, for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I will. Um, so I would say I'm a, I'm a designer. Uh, I've been fortunate to design many things uh, in, in my life. Um, I'm uh, a business innovator. Um, and I've been fortunate to been involved in all sorts of wonderful forms of business innovation. Um, I'm an artist, um, and uh, as particularly in, in in the visual context, but I have been known to uh, dip my pen in some ink and write some poetry from time to time. Uh, not that I've ever been published, but it is something very personal to me and a lovely way of. Um, kind of thinking about yourself in the world, I think. Um, I love to read. I ride motorcycles. I've been riding big motorcycles since I was 18. Um, the knees are kind of, kind of, you know, saying that it's time to kind of give it up. But quite frankly, I'm just not prepared to do that at, at the moment. Uh, I love red wine. Um, <laughs> and uh, I probably drink more than I should do. But um, I always feel that 
when you open a wonderful bottle of red wine, there's something about the sun and the earth and the land um, and actually sharing that with other people, which is um, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. So um, that's kind of me, uh, I think. Um, lastly, I live in a very small village called Horningsea, uh, which is actually a stone's throw from the uh, from Cambridge in the UK. Um, we are 300 good souls in this little village. And uh, if I walk out of the lane where I live, and right next to me is the church and the pub, which is kind of almost perfect. And then actually, if I turn a further right, 90 degrees, the River Cam, the River Cam that runs through Cambridge, hence the name Cambridge, um, you know, it's, uh, it's there, uh, which is really beautiful. If I turn left out of my lane, I walk out into the fens, uh, and I can walk for miles and miles of hours and hours, and I have been known to do those things uh, very much. So walking is very much a part of my my spiritual practice uh, and the way that I kind of reconnect to the world on a on a kind of daily basis. Thank you. Think, yeah. Yeah. And Alan, um, I know I've so it, in the course of our conversation, I'm going to want to dig into just some of uh, your writing that I found uh, truly inspiring uh, from a design perspective. Want to talk back up a little bit too, just about your kind of your journey and interest. So, in in the design and art, or kind of you know the, uh-huh. these these adjacent disciplines, where where did you start out? Did you start out as an artist? Did you start out as a designer? Well, no, I actually started out as a as a Mackey sportsman, and um, I love playing sport, and I was incredibly competitive, um, and it's been proven. Uh, that I am an, a very competitive uh, human being. Unfortunately, when I was very young, I, I had a really horrific uh, accident, and um, and that kind of you know stopped that. Um, so in a way, actually, it was, uh, it's been very interesting um, because at a very young age, I had to stop and think about who I wanted to be as a human being. Um, what was it I was going to bring into the world and. I can remember actually being, I think, in my 20, 20, I think it was 20, being at college. And I was um, really reflecting on this question. What am I? Um, I was at college. I was doing a publishing, uh, book publishing course, um, but really disconnected from who I was as a person because of the injury and, and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I literally play sport seven days a week. Um, uh, and that just completely stopped. It was very strange. I mean, uh, experience. And I can remember sitting in my, in my, my college bedroom and I remember looking at the walls around me and they were literally covered floor to ceiling with postcards and posters and, bits I'd fan out of magazines and the rest of it. And I looked at my guitars, the 12 string, the six string, uh, you know, I looked at the book of poems that, you know, I was writing and I thought you are actually kind of driven creatively. Um, and actually that was kind of weird because my mum, uh, particularly, you know, we'd had these long conversations when I was, um, in secondary school about what it was I was going to do. 
uh, going forwards. And she said, well, there's no point doing anything, you know, creative because you're negative job being creative. Right. And she did that for all the best intentions. They were wartime educated. They came from, you know, really poor part of London. Um, the idea that someone would have this idea about their station that you would go into the world creatively and make money out of it is kind of like, that's kind of a bit weird. Um, um, and yeah, I kind of, there was, was a real moment of epiphany, which was, but this is my world. Color is my world. Shape is my world. Uh, form is my world. Texture is my world. Sensuality is my world. Um, you know, and even as I was riding motorbike, motorbikes then, it's like, but the motorbikes are beautiful. The motorbikes are designed. You know, when you get on a 754, you know, Honda Supersport at the age of, I don't know, 19, you're on the Starship Enterprise and, you know, you are just going at warp speed down a road. Yeah, but that's all designed. That's all made. That's all of that. And I just thought, this is what I want. Um, and that's kind of how that's kind of how it all started. Um, I wanted to be in a world where I felt I could create and I could make. And in so doing, there was something really, uh, yeah, special uh, and exciting. Um, that I loved about the idea. And actually the, the, the one story about being on the course at Oxapoly was is Oxapolytechnic um, for your listeners out there um, was I was asked to make a book um, and you had to find someone that had a manuscript. And actually I had a friend of mine who, who actually wrote poetry. He was mad as a brush, um, which made it even more interesting. And I took his poetry and we went through the whole production process of designing a book. So, you know, uh, you got to lay it out, you choose your typeface, format, size, whatever. And then we have to go and make, you know, the plates to print the book. You print the book, you know, you, and you're choosing the paper and I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in this print room and I'm watching this big print machine printing my, this book. And then I've got to bind it as well. So I literally from end to end, and I remember having these 70 copies, which was, you know, like probably about like that, I think, the paperback book, which I had created. And it just blew my mind. I thought, well, if that is what design is, then I really want some of that. And the idea that you, you take an idea that sits in someone's head and they've sat there and they've written out, they've written out in their, you know, their best handwriting, uh, you know, these poems, and then you've gone through this mechanical process to then make, you know, a whole bunch of this guy's thoughts or ideas or whatever. And then they go out into the world, man, that's like, that's amazing. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I thought I want, I really want, I really want some of that stuff. And that's, and that was how it kind of all then just sort of kind of exploded for me, you know? Um, Thank you. One of, one of the things <laughs> I'm going to share from my perspective uh, is uh, so when I went to when I went to college, I was a double major broadcast and film and pre dentistry. I didn't know if I was going to be a filmmaker and orthodontist. Turned out not to be both. But I grew up in you know in the states what we'd call kind of a, a rust belt. It was you know for for generations working class could could have a good job for their life and uh, you know. Uh, my parents as well were uh, you know my mom was a teacher, my dad was a firefighter, and. Uh, there was, I think, that very similar 
uh, like, especially when I was talking about broadcast and film and, and art related things is like, why would you do that? And I think this concern, can you, can you make a living, right? Was where they were sitting. Uh, so it was, that was an interesting thing for me. And then uh, I think the most interesting from a design perspective is um, I had no idea what design was until, you know, I was in my twenties, right? It was, uh, I wish somebody would have talked to me about that, but uh, each, each journey is, 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 interesting and unique maybe it happens for a reason but i just wanted to share too that uh kind of from uh, you know a family's love and care was kind of like why don't you so so i think the only reason i really picked the uh the kind of orthodonture path was just to let my parents think i was going to be all right when i went to went off to school i want to jump in with uh so when i when i was introduced to your work uh just to to let kind of let you throwing my mental model on the table, it was first through uh, do design and why beauty is the the key to everything, and then uh, just recently your your latest book too is build uh, how to make a, a a business the world needs. I'm what I'd love to explore a little bit with you if you don't mind. First is um, the notion of beauty and why that is so important uh, and. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to step over what was just delightfully presented in, in your book. But if you don't mind sharing why, why beauty kind of anchors both the kind of notion of regenerative business and why sure. your, your other, but why it's the key to everything. I would say that I've been incredibly fortunate um, in the working life that I've had, which had uh, taken me all around the world met all sorts of people done some very extraordinary things um but in 2014 2015 i really kind of had a kind of road to damascus experience um and i literally stopped what am i doing why am i doing what i'm doing um, what's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing? And I felt that I was a long way from home, um, my spiritual home. And I realized I was of an age where I'm kind of looking at the end, uh, the end road, uh, rather than the beginning. And you reevaluate things pretty fundamentally at, 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 at that point. So I'd sort of done all of these incredible things, traveled the world, uh, met amazing people. But what was it all for? And I think that was the question that really was sitting with me. And having written a few books before, uh, I reflected on maybe there was a way that I could write my way home. And I sat with that thought for a very long time. And there was this moment where I... Uh, I come to a memory, I'm on a beach in Cornwall, 
uh, it's a family holiday. Uh, they were always very precious in a, in a way, I think, in those days. They were. Um, perhaps all family holidays are very precious. Uh, so we're on the beach as a family. Uh, my mum is, my mum is always a very anxious woman. Um, and there are many, many reasons for that. Uh, but she was on the beach and it was almost like watching a young child full of joy and, you know, excitement and completely carefree. And it was like such a weird kind of, that's not how mum is on like a normal day-to-day basis. You know, it's kind of, but I kind of like it. It's weird, but I like it. Um, and so it gave my heart great joy. Um, when my mum is really anxious, it makes me very anxious. So there's a sort of really symbiotic thing there. So, um, and my father was there, but I would say my father was always a very beautiful human being. Um, I mean, he never earned a lot of money in his life. Uh, he was profoundly dyslexic, you know, wartime educated. He left school at 14, but he worked all his life. But, you know, he was never going to bring in, you know, a uh, hundred grand a year or, you know, anywhere near that um but he was an incredibly beautiful man and in fact my mother and my father were this incredible unit uh through all their lives which to me um was very very important so dad was always up for a laugh he was always up for a game you know he was always really kind um with, with us children very very giving in, in many respects and then my brother and my sister and i would say you know one is not always at one with one's siblings um you know there can be spectrums of that of course uh, i mean i would say i've had pretty much a healthy relationship with 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 uh, my uh, sister and my brother but nonetheless you know and then i see myself as this seven-year-old boy uh, with his long platinum hair um, bending down on the beach or kneeling down on the beach playing with his toys and the sea is in the background, the sky is blue, the sun is up there. And I thought, I'm at one with those I love the most. I'm at one with myself. And I haven't always been at one with myself. And perhaps your listeners will understand, you know, what that might mean. Um, I know one with the natural world. And the only word that can describe that is beauty. The integral sense of unity, of homecoming, of completeness. You know, we get it sometimes. I do. We were at a gig, you know, and the 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 band, the band that you love the most, and they say the words of the song that you love the most. And there's always that transcendental ah kind of moment where everyone just is in the same zone. And that's beautiful too, you know. And and that is that, but it was that memory for me, which went, I really want to write about this because this is the thing that takes me home. And I don't quite understand why it takes me home right now. But unless I write it, I won't know why. And then I just sat down. And I wrote. 
Thank, thank you so much. I know one of the things that I've shared with some of my colleagues is over the years when I've built and led design teams, if some of some of what you had is your 14 practices in in the book. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we, we had as general principles, but I, I didn't have those as as thorough and as articulated. So I just one one of the things I just wanted you to know is I just really appreciated the 14 practices uh, that I, um, I, I find those um, centering and inspiring at the same time. Uh, and I, I just uh, the the final one right is is, is seek to create in, enduring beauty. And I just love that as a as a charge or call to action. And uh, just wanted to thank you uh, for for that uh, conversation that we had in advance getting ready for this too. related to that was the notion of the poetic brief. And so for folks mm. that aren't familiar with design, one of the things I'll share is usually there's a brief, right? And it it's, um, if you might be in an adversarial relationship with the client, it's more check the boxes, cover your ass kind of things, right? Th these are the things that did, you said to do this. Um, but one of the things you've shared too is the notion of the poetic brief. And mm. if you if you don't mind, uh, could you walk us through uh, what the poetic brief is and, and why that's important to you? So many years ago, I was working for a contemporary art gallery uh, in London called the Anthony Dossier Gallery. Um, they were working with amazing artists from all around the world. Um, and it was when it was just at the time when contemporary art was really sort of taking off um, in a major way. And then uh, I was given an incredible gift and an opportunity to work with that gallery. One of the uh, shows that was going on um, was with an artist called Cecil Collins. He's an English artist. Um, his work was very, it's got a real sacred and spiritual kind of aspect to it. And Anthony, who was the kind of owner of the gallery, um, and he was the person that I would report to, would give me the briefs for the exhibition catalogs that I would be asked to design. And, um, you know, no money was spared with these things. I mean, it was a time when it was, it was just, money was just not an issue. It was just, what can you produce that would be the most amazing and most right thing for that particular artist and that particular show? So uh, Anthony, and I, Anthony and I are sitting together uh, uh, one day and he says, so Cecil's work, Alan, he said, to me, it was very much like a jewel they feel very precious so these paintings were very small and they always had a very religious kind of aspect to them and they, they are i mean even today I, I i look at cecil's work and it really it really speaks to me um in, in fact so he said so do you think that you could design a catalog for me that would feel like a jewel and i was what 24 at the time and um I went, well, of course, Anthony, I can design a catalogue uh, that feels like a jewel. Uh, and he was going away on holiday, and I was rather bad about that because he was a bit of a control freak. So um, I quite liked the idea of the freedom. In many respects, it was a crazy brief. You know, how do you, how do you achieve uh, or reach for a brief, which is make a catalogue for this really incredibly important English artist 
feel like a jewel. And I got back on the train going out of London and I thought about it and I thought, well, what is a jewel? Well, a jewel is precious. It's a surprise. Uh, it could be a gift. Um, it could be priceless. It's sensual. Um, it's timeless. Uh, and I kind of just went through that idea of what is a jewel, you know, in terms of, 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 of experience of gift giving of its thing in the world or its place in the world. And so that kind of really then informed every decision I made about the designing of that catalog, you know, what was it going to be its format? What be, what would be the paper? Uh, what would be the typeface? Uh, how would I lay it out? What size would the pictures be? How would it be bound? Who would print it? What would be the cover jacket? Um, that idea of the majesty or the magical nature of this brief was something then that was informing design design decisions on every aspect of that catalogue. Um, and at the, at the private view, Cecil came, comes up to me. He's eighty nine. He was eighty nine years of age, and actually, that the year after that, he died. So it was the last, It was literally the last show he ever had. And he comes up to me and he says, uh, "Are you Alan Moore?" And I said, "I am." He says, "I'm Cecil Collins." And I said, "Yes, I know." He said, "You designed the catalogue." I said, "Yes, I did." He said, "It is the most beautiful catalogue anyone has ever designed for me," and. I can tell you know I've told that story so many times that every time I tell a story I well up because he he said something really important. Um, it was a very brief exchange, but it meant so much to me. But as a consequence of that, for me that idea of the poetic brief is something really important. So we can look at the you know the plumbing. Uh, or the you know the hardware, whatever it is that we're going to design, whether it, you know whatever it is in whatever format, you know two uh, D, three D, digital, whatever. We can talk about the mechanics, but what about the poetics? What where's the bit that you reach for, which is trying to find something much more, yeah, magical, elegant, graceful, special, you know sensual um and to me it so when i i i sort of you know work with people now um one of the things i challenge them with is so what is your poetic brief and how will you answer it um in a sense that's where i think we get back into the as i say i i think the 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 magical nature of what design is and or could be um outside of you know the form and i mean in the book as you know i write about the shakers and right, uh, right, right. and shaker design and um I, if i'm not jumping the gun here but just thinking about the connection of those things is their work is so eternally beautiful and so incredibly elegant but what they're reaching for is not beauty, but truth. And I think the poetic brief is kind of in that space, you know. Um, and I really like that. I mean, I think that, you know, how do you reveal the beauty in something? Um, it's waiting to be found. Um, that, 
Alan, that's that's great. I really appreciate appreciate not only the poetic brief, because also I think for like because what I'm hearing in that too is it's almost as as a craftsperson, when design is at its best, what is it doing? Right. And mm. um not like you said, not only the functional components, but what what can it evoke? What can it do? right to make things better that's part of what i'm hearing and loved love the story the the anxious person in me when you're when you're telling your story the confrontation with the question was you're alan moore and you designed this i'm like oh god you missed the point right but how 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 rewarding to hear that when you've you know done that so i really appreciate you sharing that story and as you talk about the shakers that was also one of the things that really resonated with me. And I appreciated you talking about uh, the the time, also kind of almost a timescale view that uh, the shakers took right there. There seemed to be like, in a way, a zooming out and zooming in, but like, how do you do this for uh, something that can endure? And yet, and sometimes like, what what's the best that I can do right now was, was a notion that I was pulling out from what you talked about with the shakers. And, and I don't know if I have that right or not, but um, it felt like what's the best we can do today. <laughs> and I, I felt like there was this challenge of mortality. If I were to die tomorrow, did I have a good day? And can I do something uh, uh, beautiful? And, and, and to me, it blends into your, your next book, but also like, how might I be a good ancestor? What are the things that I could create of enduring beauty uh, given the limited time I have on this plane? Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the thing about time is a very important question, and uh, you would say that. Well, if you take it from the shaker perspective, I think that they, you could, I, I don't know, you can almost see in their work, or not almost, you do see in their work there's a sense of timelessness in what it is they make. Now it may not be for everybody. I'm not saying everyone should have shaker stuff in their, in their house, or whatever, but, but they believed in the concepts of beauty and utility being one and the same thing. Um, and I suppose when I was working as a designer in the very early days, and it sort of, sort of takes me right back to the story of book design, which was, I was in service to a greater good. Um, my work was there to support and help others. And uh, I, I bought into um, the belief that you have to think about time in a very different context then if you're going to do those things. I mean, you could, you could say... Yeah, but if you're designing something for an emergency or kind of weather, they're, they're very different time constraints. I understand that. I, I, I get, I totally get that. Um, but when I think about it from the human condition or from a sociological perspective, you know, the broader work that design can do, it should be there to elevate our lot collectively. Um a chair that is designed, a pen that is designed, you know, a notepad, um, you know, whatever. I'm just sort of looking around my desk now as, a, you know, a glass, you know, designed, you know, this is designed by a guy called Kai Frank, 
who was a Finnish designer, um, his work is just so incredibly elegant. Or someone like Alvar Aalto, okay, an architect, but right. you know, still, you know, he talked about Gazant work, that everything that you created should be a total work of art, you know, where you see the connection and the harmonious relationship between all of those things. And I think we shouldn't give those things up. Um, uh, it's the way that we actually reclaim our humanity. Um, and that, to me, that collective way of thinking is nothing other than actually how we as humans are designed and the common sense approach of how we can live better on this planet. Um, and that's why that kind of concept around design and craft for me is just so utterly important. Thank you. And I, I do want to move into just a, lit, a little bit too about uh, your most recent book, right, is, is how, how to make and, and build a business the world needs. And discussion, uh, a lot of a lot of what you're you're um, talking about in there is regenerative regenerative business. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that really resonated with me in some of your early framing in the book is uh, the value and metrics of a regenerative economy. And mm. I really appreciated, I guess, uh, uh, you know, kind of even the the notion of extraction versus kind of regenerative and the notion of value and just stepping back by, by chance, do you know, Saul Kaplan? Um, I the feel name, like, yeah, the name rings a bell. That's a long, that's a long, that's, that's a, that's a bell from the past. Okay. But, uh, yeah. Saul has like... the business innovation factory in uh, Rhode okay. Island and he, his focus and where Biff is, is basically designed for social good. Right, kind of like the short version of it, and and Saul's just a, a wonderful, wonderful human to talk to, and I remember a conversation with him too. Is like a little bit of an epiphany for him, especially on the innovation front. Was, um, you know, like starting to separate the 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 share takers from the market makers, and we've had so many business people that are. Share, you know, in a share taking mentality, right? It, it, this is, this is, there are fixed resources and I need to take as much. And if you're getting more, if you're getting more of this pie, that means less for me rather than this market making. And I, I don't mean to oversimplify your work, but that I feel like the regenerative economy feels very similar to market making that not because what I, I feel in, in your book and please, <laughs> Please just just tell me if I'm I'm completely off base. But one one of the things I was was taking from uh, from from the business book was how we can actually do great business. All all of the things that make maybe a share taker happy, right? We can check all those boxes and we can do so much more. Almost like an improv. Yes, and if we reframe this a little bit, we not only can we do good business, we can do things that are good for humans, can can help people maintain dignity in their lives, and we can do things that are good for our, our ecosystem and our environment, that that these things aren't mutually exclusive if, like, kind of with intent, we choose that path. And I just kind of wanted to check, check my understanding. Am I, am I kind of close on regenerative versus kind of the extraction? No, you're bang on. Um, the... 
you're absolutely uh bang on with with that the the kind of backstory to that which is uh you know nature has run the longest r d project we've ever known and um she's kind of worked out how to hang around for a while like all eternity people um and if we want to hang around for a bit longer maybe um then we need to learn from nature's playbook and nature's deep design model is on the one hand the the Nobel Prize winning physicists, and it's not just one, it's not just Einstein, it's many, many, many of them over many generations talk about the description of how our our world works at a kind of, you know, a a macro and a micro level are said to be beautiful. The more beautiful the physical way that we describe the world, then the more true it is. It's almost a form of poetics. You know, maths, in a sense, is almost a form of poetics. And nature's deep design model is to create the conditions for all life to thrive. Um, And what it says is you cannot take um, or extract uh, everything from one place uh, because what you do is you kill it and then, um, then nothing lives. And the fact that, you know, you need ecosystems which you know work on the nature the the reality of you know the macro so the sky uh you know uh the atmosphere the sun the rain the kind of whatever but then the smallest tiniest things that kind of move on this planet uh you know are equally uh, are in this incredible interface and interplay um and of course there are lots of people that have different points of view about how that all came about but it's an incredible piece of design is all right. I can say. Yeah. It's, in, it's extraordinary. And so I think the, to your, your point and your question is, is absolutely. If, if, if we uh, want to continue living in this world and if we, you know, if we didn't have a wake up call through the global financial crisis, which we didn't quite clearly. Um, and if we didn't get it through uh, you know, the pandemic, which some people are still struggling with, it seems um, if we watch the wildfires which have been going on and actually, you know, I was in Greece uh, last week. So very close to Athens um, to watch that, that stuff go down. It's like, this is kind of what happens when we work on an extractive economy. This is your reality. Um, and we are completely irrelevant to mother earth in many ways. Um, and she has given us the gift to live on this planet. And what we've not done is we've not loved it back. Um, and we've got to love it back, uh, is the way that I, I, I see it. And so for me, the question is, is in a regenerative economy, the first question is what contribution are you making to this world people? Um, Um, we can look at all sorts of businesses, which are, because I think business actually is the engine of transformation. We can design businesses. You can say Uber is a business that's been designed. Um, Amazon is a business that's been designed. Um, you know, do we need Amazon? Do we need Uber? Well, in some respects, we do need those. 
but do we need them to operate the way that they do in uh, in England? I don't know whether uh, you uh, come across it, but just recently there was a piece of information which was Amazon was destroying something like I can't remember whether it's one hundred eighty thousand or one hundred eighty million units of consumer goods a year because they've passed their shelf life. And they go into landfill. That 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 to me, that's an extractive economy, which right. is ut- which is utterly insane. Mm-hmm. And and so we need to think about design then as a way of thinking about the nature of business where we work within how the natural world works, you know. Uh, and as my friend says to me, nature doesn't waste a single atom, not one. It's not a single atom that nature wastes, you know. Um, yeah. Doesn't you know? There's no, there's no, there's no landfill out in out in the cosmos somewhere. There's no, there's no kind of like sort of you know cyberspace super dumper dumper truck yeah. that's just taking the cosmos shit sort of out into somewhere you know where it's being dumped. It doesn't work like that. So what are we thinking by doing it on our own planet? It's just extraordinary. A, a, a couple a couple thoughts there too and first again thank you for for the insight um yeah because i've over my career i've become a bigger and bigger fan of biomimicry and biomesis as a way to like in 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 elegant ways say just saying nature's already solved this how did they how did they approach that right and and starting to to, to look at that and uh side note i've started keeping bees so i have honeybees in my backyard and i've been looking from like a whole systems perspective about uh bees individually but like like one of the nerdiest things i i find in 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 helping maybe think through some of these bees individually are cold-blooded right they can't they can't make themselves warm as a super organism they're warm-blooded and they can control the the heat and humidity in their hive right and so the way they behave as a super organism to me is is super inspiring uh and then when when we were talking about nature and earth one of the things i keep thinking of and maybe this is the dark side of me is um planet earth is going to go on like but in in many ways mother nature could give a fuck if we're going to stick around for the ride right it's that's up to us in many ways and i i feel like sometimes that's the almost sublime beauty of the universe is how it it can it can work its magic uh, regardless of are we going to be there or not, and and I think we've we've been given a gift of agency that we can influence this, and and, and I feel like just like we're kind of wasting it in this extractive, court, like almost uh, business quarter to business quarter mentality. Like we we oh. just have to we just have to show positive numbers here, and to your to your that the Amazon story, it, yeah, it, on the short term. It's it's cheaper to dump this in a landfill and maybe even pay environmental regulatory fees, right? Then actually take care of it or go to a zero waste kind of nature, because there probably are other uses for it or or what might be done. But sorry, though, just weird comment. Just wanted to let you know what was percolating yeah, no, in no, my head. Well, no, no, they all make sense. And you look at all of those. You know, you look at people which are living in extraordinary poverty in. Um, you know, in England or elsewhere, it's like, why can't you donate those TVs to 
people that really need them that couldn't afford them. Um, there's enough money in the world to make it all work. Right. Um, you know, and and in a way, as I say, the for me, I think we need to change. Part of the design challenge is to change the conversation. As you know, in the states, it's like to call someone a communist or to call it, you know, even social. My God, you know, you know, you're you're well, those you're, those right now. Uh, socialist you're, is you're, about the worst you're, thing you can you're, call you're, you're, you're But the reality is, is but everyone needs community, right? Everyone needs a town or a village or you know whatever it is. That it, it's it, it's just so crazy. So I think the design challenges, uh, you know, to the folks listening to this is you need to go out there and tell better stories and you need to really invite people into saying what the world could look like, you know, were we to make it to work for everybody. Um, the other one is carbon is not the problem. We are. And um, we, we need to kind of really kind of figure that stuff out. Um, and I think, uh, in a sense, actually, and this is the crazy thing, is our superpower as Homo sapiens. And the reality is, we are unfortunately, or, or well, I only say that because it's a form of kind of non-apology. I suppose I'm not apologising for what I'm about to say, which is, Homo sapiens are one species people. You know, it doesn't matter. And in fact, I celebrate all of our diversity. Um, and there are lots of people at this moment, for whatever reason, which are wanting to other other people um, and to create division. It's all about power and it's all about control. And the reality is for most people, um, the majority of people on this planet, what they would just love to do is to go about their daily business, uh, have a roof over their head, be able to love their children, feed their children, watch their gardens grow, watch their children's grow, for their communities to feel safe places in which they can be and exist. And that is what most people want. There are very few people in the world that don't want that. Um, and these are the ones that we need to resist. Um, they are the ones that are hell-bent on extraction. They're not the ones that are hell-bent on regeneration and that's why as i said you know you're i mean i wrote a note uh, further back in terms of what you were talking about and i wrote about the tragedy of the commons which you know my good friend howard Rheingold talked about you know in the early days of the internet uh, and all the rest of it you know the idea of the commons was a really important bit you know how do we protect the commons and of course zuckerberg is not interested in the commons uh you know larry page and you know his mates aren't interested in the commons um what they're interested in is power and they're interested in money. But what they don't do is they don't serve the common good. And in a way, if we go right back to sort of the beginning of, you know, the conversation here around do design, and I would describe myself, as I said, as a designer, but also as a craftsman. And the craftsman is the holy trinity of the hand, the heart and the mind. And your work is in giving your gifts, your work, your capacity, to the collective good because we don't build cities on our own we don't build cathedrals or mosques or synagogues or any other kind of you know place in which we can come together and transcend football stadiums you know uh, whether that's soccer or whether that's american football 
guys, these things have to be built by a lot of people, you know? So if we all think that kind of hanging around on this planet, being the eye uh, is the most important thing, then you're not going to be around for very long because the only way we hang around for a while is to be a we. Um, and that to me is, uh, is extremely important. Thank you. Uh, just a little bit earlier, we were talking about the sciences and, and sometimes the beauty in that. A, a couple things just to share with you. Uh, one is a, a friend of mine uh, who is a microbiology researcher. Uh, and her, her primary area of focus is cystic fibrosis. Uh, but we were, we were having a, com, uh, a conversation. We, we periodically, back when we could go to pubs, uh, we'd have conversations about the, the interplay between science and design mm. on, on many different levels. But one of the things I found most fascinating was uh, we were talking about bacterial colonies. And there's also, there's a tragedy of the commons uh, in bacterial uh, colonies. And she talks about how there can be a collapse because certain, uh, and there's communication networks within bacteria where we think of them as simple celled, but together, but it was really interesting that there's a, there's a tragedy of the commons in, uh, in bacteria as well. The other thing I wanted to just mention, and I, I, you might be familiar with, uh, is it, uh, David Deutsch's work on, uh, from a physicist perspective, but I think he has claimed that we are, um, this is back to your narrative and vision from a leadership perspective, but I believe one of his, his thesis statements is, uh, he believes as humans, we are limited by our power of explanation that the better we are at explaining phenomena, the better we can be. And I just found that really interesting from, from a physics realm, also kind of embracing a, a communication and narrative realm. Uh, so I was just going to throw those out there and see if either of those excite you as weird or just trivial comment. Well, they're not trivial at all. Um, the, the David Deutsch one uh, uh, really intrigues me. I think that, it goes back to that idea of, well, it makes me think of Frank Vilcek, who was the guy that wrote the book. He's a Nobel Prize winning um, uh, scientist who wrote the book, The Most Beautiful Question, and The Most Beautiful Question in the World is the World of Work of Art, um, where he gets really stuck into the whole thing about, uh, you know, nature's, nature's deep design model being being beautiful. Um just remind me again what David Deutsch said. Just uh... it, the and and I'm probably butchering it, but my my takeaway is that now as humans, like one of the our limiting factors, right? Like is is uh, related to our ability or, or inability to explain something. Okay. And the more elegantly or or more thoroughly that we can explain something, the better we can be. So that's so so linked to. Yeah, so linked to what I was thinking about Vilcek is that ability to be incredible storytellers and the ability to be able to bring um, maybe a whole range of very disparate uh, thoughts and ideas together that make sense. Um, and I suppose in um, the, you know, the work that I try, I've been trying to do, I mean, with Do Design and Do Build, um, is actually tied to explain something immensely complex, but in a way which is understandable. Yeah. Uh, without 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 it without simplifying it 
as a story. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've had to work really hard to get to that point. Um, if I'm, if I'm absolutely honest, but I'm really glad I did because I think you can tell a really profoundly important story, um, or to explain if that's a, you know, uh, another, uh, terminology or technology that we you know we could use that other people can see the world through the eyes that you see the world and i think that that is very uh, critical at this moment in in time um and it also relates to i suppose in a way but it but it also relates to that idea of transcendence so i so said back to that thing about you know say you know you're in the you know you're in the stadium and um you know the 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 singer says the name of the song and a hundred thousand people or a hundred people or fifty people or ten people they all just go oh man you know and all of a sudden they are explaining something about the world within the sensuality of music which actually yeah, right. So it's a you know it's a three minute song. It could be a five minute song. It might be much longer. You know, Max Richter, who you know wrote that piece, um, which was uh, I can't remember whether it was twenty four hours or whether it was sixteen. But you know, and people turn up at night, and it's actually people go to sleep with these things. You know, but in a way, he's explaining something about the human condition and human nature through the poetry of his music um which is then not even vocal um you know it's just notes um and i remember actually a guy called john o'donoghue wrote a wonderful book called divine beauty and he said music is what language would like to be if it could do so and i just thought you know what a wonderful what a wonderful expression of in a sense what we have brought into this world we really? as human beings have brought into this world this 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 music this musicality you know was it us sitting there listening to incredible birds and the wind and the sea and uh and then someone kind of going well maybe there's a way of interpreting that there has to be this moment this incredible design moment of of utter transition of that way of experiencing and then that way of explaining or sharing as a form of kind of transcendence, you know? Absolutely. And, and you're, you're touching upon, like for me on the creative side, one of the greatest frustrations for me is sometimes the beauty of an idea, right? As it's in your head and in your heart, and then the inability to, to convey that in, in words or music becomes it and i i have one of my personal theories as a as a communication scholar is i think one of the things that is really frustrating for humans is when we can't communicate what's inside of us i i see that in toddlers mm. right the frustration that they have that the language and communicate it, it exceeds their their I, and and i see the same thing when we see adults that might be victims of stroke or like the frustration when we know it in here, but we can't convey it in a meaningful way. Um, I do, uh, just to clarify, the uh, David Deutsch, The Beginning of Infinity was the, yeah. So, it, right. and 
the subtitle of the book is Explanations That Transform the World. When you're talking about music, too, by chance, have you, um, are you familiar with the band Wilco from yes. uh, the States? Yes. Uh, Jeff Tweedy has yes. a delightful How to Write One Song. Have you read that? Or see, It's so fun. Uh, so I just thought as you were talking about poetry and, and song, uh, just want to make sure that's on your radar. Yeah, no, we uh, I, I celebrated that uh, that book when it came out because I just thought it was just so fantastic. And I think that um, one of the things I'd like to say here, um, because of what you've just said, is you know it was. Um, not only Picasso, and I'm thinking of, um, I'm trying to think of the German artist uh, who is very famous and whose name escapes me now, uh, came out of post-war, uh, and it may well it'll come to me. But he had the view that we are all artists, you know, and I would say we are all designers and we are all creative. And in a sense, when you look at children, they just have this incredible ability to want to express themselves in the world. You know, it's, it's very innate in them. Um, and then what we do is we do a really good job in destroying it. And, and then we kind of say, but you could be a designer if you go on this, you know, this, this design course or this, um, uh, yeah, or an yeah. artist or, or whatever, you know, and, um, and I understand that critical thinking is a very important part of maybe sort of looking at the world that you live in and all the rest of it. But, um, but I do think that that is very important um, for me to say and, and to, to share. Uh, I mean, partly because in a way I was never really formally, I mean, outside of like, you know, the making of the book and I failed the publishing course anyway um uh but you know it set me on the path of creativity is the thing that i want to you know this this is the thing that fills my life up you know this is the bit that makes it interesting and it makes it fun um and in a sense that's kind of like i suppose i've always been a bit of an outlaw um in in that sense um and just trusting on I mean, of course, there's lots of practice. Um, there's always been a lot of practice. I mean, even, you know, when I taught myself to draw and, you know, I still got the first drawing books and they're terrible, but I just drew and I drew and I drew and I drew and I drew and eventually you find a language and you find a voice, you know, and I, I, I mean, I drew for myself, not for anybody else, but um, I kind of proved that you, you know, with that, that real conviction, uh, you have something to, to, to give to the world. Um, it may be not on the scale of some artists and, you know, that's their trajectory and that's their journey and all the rest of it. That's cool. But we've all got something to give is, is how I feel about it. I mean, even, you know, a meal is a piece of creativity. A meal is a piece of design. Uh, you know, the ingredients you choose to uh, assemble, the way that you choose to, uh, you know, disassemble them, chop them up, the way you choose to then reassemble them, you know, in, in the cooking and the timing and the framing, that's all design. You're using all, all, all of the elements of, 
how you make and bring something into this into this world right which is why if anyone ever cooks me a meal you know i am so utterly grateful because they have brought their creativity and put it on a plate for me to 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 eat and that is a gift because that's also then shared and that goes back to that concept of craft as as as, as i see it you know no one wants to sit uh, at a meal table you know breakfast lunch or dinner really well breakfast maybe you know if you're feeling a bit gnarly but uh, <laughs> right. you know I mean, before bre- before the tea or coffee's kicked in yeah, yeah yeah but outside of that you know food is a very social thing and where we transcend and where we connect together and you know even if you're having a big old row over the you know the kitchen table or something the reality is is that we are joined by this gift that someone has brought to the to the to the table um and that's an incredible form of generosity which i think is is important thank you Alan, one one of the things I like to cover with guests is a notion of advice. Uh, And (laughs) this tends to take kind of two different paths. So uh, either both uh, would be appreciated. But the the advice is sometimes uh, good advice we received from a a mentor or an elder. And I'd say, like, for me, it's something that you find was really elegant payload that continues to pay off later that usually sounded like nonsense when we're young and cocky. Like, uh, and then you just appreciate it more as you get older or uh, me stealing from uh, the book, steal like an artist right, is Austin Cleon says, when we're giving advice, we're just simply talking to our younger self. So uh, what might've been like advice that you wish you would have had earlier or what was good advice that you received in your journey? Well, I suppose there's two there's two stories in that I'd, I'd want to share with you. Um, in a way, the first one was one that came from my own sense of survival, and uh, having left college, uh, I decided that you know I wanted to be a designer. Design was the thing I was going to be, and in those days, it was I'm going to be a book designer. But I can remember. Um, uh, getting myself onto a part-time graphic design course um, at Dunstable College, which uh, it will mean nothing to you guys uh, out where you are. But it's in the middle of nowhere. And, um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm, like, I'm, yeah. I'm in Iowa. I live okay. middle of nowhere every day. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I, it was like a foundation course in, in design. Um, but I can remember sitting in the, in the uh, uh, lunch break and these two tutors of mine, and uh, they were wearing brown cords and uh, a thing called polyvelt shoes, which weren't the coolest shoes that you would ever, you know, wear. And I, and I can't remember looking at them and I was like 20, I was like 22 or something. I thought, you're not going to give me what I need, you know. You're just not going to give me what I need. Um, and I'd also had this magazine, which was uh, called Design Week. And on the front was this, the name of this guy called Derek Bertel, um, who became my mentor. And, you know, that will be the next part of the story. But I thought it was, this is, if Derek Bertel becomes visiting professor of graphics at the Royal College of Art. And I thought, he's the man. 
um you know and i've always believed go to the, go to the top first and just work down you know it's like uh you know just just take just take gravity but you know it's much harder to go up than it is to go down i can tell you so uh what i did was as i uh i wrote derek a letter and i just said um mr Bertzel, uh, I'm a huge fan of, of your work. And he was a very famous book designer. So that was in a way of quite a big connection for me. Um, Mr. Bursell, huge fan of your work. Uh, you know, I'm just this sort of, you know, small, you know, country guy who really wants to kind of get into the design. Um, I have no possibility of ever getting to the Royal College of Art. Uh, but if I could come to some of your lectures or just sit in at the back just to listen, would that be possible, um, please, uh, sir, type <laughs> thing. And uh, so I sent this letter and and then I would call his, uh, his office and he was always out or at a meeting or whatever. And I wondered whether he, in English we call it the bum's rush, which is, you know, uh, you know, he just doesn't want to talk to you. Um, and then it was this one day where he's... Um, his daughter answered the phone, who actually was his, his kind of secretary, Elsa, and she said, ah, well, it's probably that dad has just lost the letter. So my advice to you is send it again. So what I did was is I sent the same letter again, but twice. I sent it to the Royal College of Art, uh, recorded delivery, which means that someone has to sign for it, right? And I sent it to his office in, in London, uh, in Covent Garden, where someone had to sign for it, recorded delivery. Um, so I had all bases covered. And there was, uh, at the time I was living at home and it was about seven o'clock in the evening and the phone went and my mum answered the phone and she said, uh, Alan, there's a guy called, uh, I think Derek, that wants to speak to you. And so I, I went to the phone and I answered the phone and there's this voice on the phone, he says, it's Derek Birdsall. I've received your letter. I think you should come and see me. Right. So it was like, that was incredible. So, so in, in the, in the, in the 14 practices, the go see is all about Derek, right? That's the go see. Um, so I say, go see, go see someone, you know, that you would think you would have no possibility of ever meeting. Uh, if you ask in the right way and your ask is for the right reasons, they will meet you and they will give you their time. And so I went to see Derek and I mean, just to continue this conversation, because I think it's like, so I was thinking, well, what is a designer and where does a, you know, what is a designer studio look like? You know, I mean, I, I had no idea. Right. I mean, so I had to, I had to go out to London to, to, um, to meet him. And uh, he lived in a place called Highbury in Islington, uh, which is sort of North London. And I, come out of the tube it's a saturday morning um i go to the front door big old london townhouse um and his wife shirley answers the door and she's oh alan uh, nice to meet you coming he says derek's been up all night playing poker so he's a bit late getting up um but he'll be with you in the morning but what i want you to do is just go down to the studio right down to the studio um and he'll meet you there so i go out of the house um into this back garden and then what confronts me is a wall which just goes up forever goes wide forever 
It's a huge factory. And in the corner of their garden, it's this little door. And it really is like, I don't know, uh, you know, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe. And I open this door and I walk in and I stand there and my jaw hits the floor. And I think, well, if this is what a designer's studio looks like, man, I really want some of this. So I'm looking at thousands and thousands of square feet of factory space. Um, there is a full on letterpress print uh, studio in there with all the type boxes and all the rest of it. There are more books in the studio than I've seen in any other place of a library, like a really big one. Um, this is pre-computers, and Derek is as a book designer, so he's got these, these trestle tables which are just laid one next to the other, and each one is a, a full-scale double-page spread of a fully illustrated book he's designing for a client, and he's got a number on the go. So there's a lot of trestle tables, right, which is kind of just laid out in this place. Um, and then in the middle of the studio is a tiny table with a green baize on it with an empty bottle of Jack Daniels and some playing cards with a, with a lamp that is strung up like which's hanging down from about, I don't know, 40 feet of cable where he's been playing poker. This is a designer studio, apparently. This is what designer studios look like. And I was just, I was just so in love with all of this. Anyway, so to your, your question. So Derek comes down to the studio and, you know, he shakes my hand and, uh, you know, nice to meet you and, uh, and all the rest of it. And, and, and we're chatting away and he's pulling some books off the bookshelves and, you know, I think you should look at this and look at that. And I say to him, so Derek, when you design a book, where do you start? So I was thinking like, you know, we'd be talking about, you know, the mechanics of format or typefaces or, you know, all that kind of, he went, I start with the space between the lines and now you can go home. And I was like, I really thought, you know, <laughs> damn you, Derek. Uh, and I remember going back in the train, it was like my arms crossed. It was almost like a shunned lover. You know, it's like, I didn't get that kiss. And, and, uh, and, um, and then he, you know, he said, you, know, you can come back next week. Um, but what he taught me in that as a girl gift was, is to think about the overall concept of the experience of the book that you're going to create for the reader. Right. And uh, in a sense, he, he gave me a piece of Zen philosophy you know, the, the idea that the pot is not the pot that makes the pot. It's the space in the pot and around the pot. Um, you know, the idea of a wheel or a, a space in a house or a room or whatever. It's actually the stuff that isn't there that makes it the thing it is rather than the thing it is there. And that's a really different way of thinking about the world. Um, and to envision it as a possibility and i suppose reconnecting that then so when anthony said to me will you design this catalog like a jewel you know i was given an incredible gift of envisaging something of what it may be like um and i think that is where also i suppose it was a bit of a shock to me much later on in my life when i sort of worked in the space of innovation where 
what I would do is if someone asked me to do something, I would envision what that would really look like. What would the best outcome look like? And of course, there are times then when you do that and when you really push in the envelope is actually there are materials that don't exist to do that or there are production processes that don't exist to get there or, or you, people aren't really knowledgeable about them. And what would then happen with this is really weird dialogue where they would start to talk about risk and not possible. And I would just say, but you're taking the biggest risk of all because you're not reaching for the thing that we should really be reaching for. You know, what is your problem, people? And I've had that, I've had that conversation with some really big companies in my time. Um, and once, you know, one time I just said, well, actually, the biggest risk you're taking is you're taking no risk at all. Because you're not thinking about the space between the lines. You're not thinking about the jewel. You're not thinking about those things. So, you know, that's why I would say to people, yeah, go see um, and, and listen really uh, deeply to what that person says to you even if it pisses you off. Um, and, um, and I think that other piece of advice is design is really about the end, the, the, the true poetry of the outcome of the thing that really needs to be in this world. And anything other than that is a compromise. And then I think that's a waste of human time. It's a waste of material. Um, and it's a waste of the people that then are using whatever that, that thing is, um, is the way that I see it. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It was, it was an honor to, to talk with you. So I uh, just want to thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. Well, uh, you know, you're absolutely welcome, and I've really enjoyed it. And uh, in a way, it's a it's it's been kind of nice to sort of I don't know really feel I'm standing on my true turf, you know, and my true homeland, and uh, and all of that stuff. So uh, you've energised me with your questions and uh, and the conversation. I've, I've really appreciated it. Thank you. Well, thank you.